for days, they were lost. They had been circling through a part of the forest they had never been in. The trees were thicker, taller. The woods were darker because there was less sunlight that penetrated the floor of this part of the forest. They didn't know their way out. And so for days, they've been trying to get their way out. And it seemed no matter which direction they went, they only found themselves deeper in the woods. And the problem is that they were now getting incredibly hungry. And they're on the brink of starvation. But that's when Hansel saw it. Gretel! That house is made of candy. And to their disbelief, they approach it and they touch it. I dare you to lick it. And they lick it. (gasps) The roof is made of frosting and cupcakes. And Gretel discovers that the window panes are pure see-through sugar. And they begin grabbing pieces off this house. And I can't say nourishing, but at least tantalizing their hunger. Getting something. Every kid wants candy for dinner. So this was dream of a lifetime. And then out came an old lady from the house. And they dropped their candy right away and hid it and said, "Mm, there's no frosting on my mouth. We weren't doing anything. And she rather empathetically looks at them and says, Oh, you poor dears, why don't you come in, come in? And they're not sure if they're in trouble, but they come in. And to their delight, they find a table with warm food. The steam still rising off the soup. And instead of water or milk, they have chocolate, hot chocolate to sip. And the food looks amazing. And they sit down, they fill their bellies, and then she shows them two beds made with clean, pristine white sheets. And she says, why don't you take some rest tonight right here, and we'll find a way to get you home tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow, you rest now. She tucks them into bed, tells them a bedtime story, and soon enough, they are off in the dreams of Candyland. Well... In the morning, things changed quite drastically. See, Hansel and Gretel didn't know that this nice old lady was actually a witch who enjoyed eating children for her sustenance. And she lured these children in so she could eat them. Hansel, the boy, she throws into the stable and bars him behind a gate. And Gretel, the girl, she makes to fetch him water and make him food. And she only let her have the scraps See, she needs to get Hansel fatter. He's been hungry lately. And she wants a good plump boy to eat for dinner. So she begins to feed him. Day after day, she's making all this food and she's fattening Hansel up. Well, then the day comes when it's time to eat him. And so she she pulls Gretel, the girl, into the kitchen, has her help her prep the seasonings and the spices and the oven in which Hansel will be cooked. The witch has this plan, you see. And in the meantime, 
Gretel cries out in despair, knowing this is, this is, we are going to cook my brother right now, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. She cries out, God, help us. And that's when this wicked witch has Gretel go toward the oven and says, why don't you poke your head on in there, dear, and see if it's warm enough. Yes, yes, warm enough. We need to make sure it's warm enough. Gretel can tell what the witch is up to. She's going to push me into that darn oven as soon as I get my head near enough. So Gretel has this moment where she realizes she can play the part well. I don't know how to look into the oven and check the temperature, miss. Oh, you worthless goose. I'll show you. Yes, I'll show you. And the witch puts her head in and Gretel shoves her in and shuts the door. And the wicked witch is cooked. So Gretel bounds along and frees Hansel from his cellar. And they run out and they are able to find their way out of the forest because they're no longer hexed by the witch. And they live happily ever after. But that's not the way all of our story ends, unfortunately. And that's not the way the kingdom of Israel's story ends. Some of us are seduced into the house of candy. And we get fattened. And we like being fattened. And we no longer feel motivated to leave. And before you know it, We, who were consuming the pleasures of the house, become the consumed by the house. This is the story of Israel. Let's read chapter 15. Verse 17. 15, 17. We are going to look at Three of Israel, let me restart that. We're going to look at three of Israel's last four kings. Three of these last four kings have encounters with a looming empire known as the Assyrians. The Assyrians are eventually going to take over all of the civilized world, and Israel is in their sights. The Assyrians were brutal and worthless, they were known for leaving monuments of piled skulls of the leaders that they scalped from every city that they conquered. Their campaign was one of terrorism, so that people would give up before they even had to fight. That way they could keep their army intact and continue to move on conquering the world. Well, we're going to see these three encounters. So in 1517, in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, remember that's the southern two tribes, Menahem the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel. Remember, Israel is the ten tribes of the north. It's, it's the wicked kingdom. And he reigned ten years in Samaria. And Samaria is the capital city. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, verse 19 is where we get the action. Pool. The king of Assyria came against the land, and Menahem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver. Now, a talent is about 75 pounds. So a thousand talents of silver 
if I remember what I added earlier, it's 3,750 pounds of silver he gives to the king of Assyria. He gave him that much silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal throne. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. So what happens? This this terrorizing empire comes to terrorize Israel. Menahem says, all right, I need all my aristocracy to cough up 50 uh, measures of silver, and I will give that to the king of Assyria to pay him off. You don't say no to the king, so everyone coughs up the silver. He pays off the king of Assyria. Whew, we dodged that one. Problem is all he did was put a really, really, really fancy band-aid on a really, really ugly gash. You can't put a band-aid on a gash. It needs surgery. It needs stitches. It needs more than a band-aid. So, his son reigns, and his son is assassinated by a guy named Pekka, a commander in the army. So we see Pekka's reign now in verse 29. 15-29. Pekka's not a nice guy, right? He killed the king to become king. So you kind of get the sense of what kind of a guy he's like. How's he going to handle Assyria? In the days of Pekka, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured... Ejon, Abel, Beth, Maaka, Jana, Kadesh, Azor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So now the Assyrians come, and rather than paying them off, they enter into the land and begin taking some of their cities and regions. And so now much of the population is being terrorized and tortured. The Assyrians were known to flay the leaders of cities alive. This was now happening to Israel's own people. We're not told much about what Pekah did. But if I know a general, and if I know someone who's willing to assassinate the king above him to become the king in his place, my guess is Pekah looked at the Assyrians and said, Bring it on, I can take it down. Rather than paying them off, He fights them. He obviously is losing as they're losing cities. And eventually he has to pay. He succumbs to paying them off and they leave. And Samaria, the capital city, is still intact. But now we see Israel's beginning to break. And now, guess what happens? Apparently, whatever party this king supported, it was the other political party that didn't like him. I'm fictionalizing a little bit. Because he was ousted right after this event. Look at verse 30. Then Hoshea, the son of Ella, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramileh, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place. Wow, so two kings in a row got there through assassination. Things are getting very turbulent in Israel. Now, Hoshea is their last king. So now we jump up to chapter 17. 16 tells us about the kingdom of Judah. Meanwhile, but chapter 17, we pick up on Hosea now. And look at verse 3. Against him, Hosea, 17.3, 
came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. So now it's the third king of Assyria to come to Israel. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. So Assyria now has such a grip on Israel that all they have to do is show up and say, do you really want to fight us? And Hosea's like, no, we're good, we're good. What, what do you do require? And so he becomes a vassal, which means he pays an annual tribute to Assyria in order to stay alive. So this is the position Israel's in now. They're slaves to Assyria. And Hosea has to pay it. But in verse 4, the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Pause. See what's going on? Hosea just decides, eh, the next time the emissaries come from Assyria to collect all of our wealth, we're just going to turn them away. With nothing. So he does. And now he has exactly the amount of time it takes the emissaries to get back to Assyria to tell the king he rebelled. He has that much time now to rally up support. So he goes to Egypt and says, will you guys help me? Because if you don't help us, you're next. He's going to take you guys down next. So this army is raised. We're not told what happens, but apparently Egypt bails on Israel, and they're left now, out to dry. An angry Assyrian king is coming to exact revenge for rebellion. So, that's where you read in the middle of verse 4, Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Get the king out of there. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, For three years, he besieged it. So the entire land is conquered. And now these floodwaters have come right up to the gates of Samaria. And they're surrounded. That's what it means to to besiege a city, is to surround it with your army so that you cut off all supplies from coming in and anybody from getting out. You basically trap everyone in a city-sized tomb. And they will starve to death or eat each other. That's... So there comes a point when we know their supplies of grain, their pantries are gone, they have no more clean water, now's the time to attack. They can't put up a fight when you are skin and bones. So this is the end of Samaria, of the kingdom of Israel. And so we read in verse 6, rather just coldly and just a straight report, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala. And on the Habar, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Just like that. It's done. Our narrator apparently has no, not too much emotion to spare here. It's almost like they had it coming. So it happened. Do you notice how the reporting there is very political? In all three cases, we have with Manah, Menahem, yeah, Menahem. All we read about is, hey, the king of Assyria came and he paid him off. The next king, Pekah, king of Assyria came and took these cities and then he eventually had a surrender and then he was killed. 
And then Hosea takes over, and he has to pay lots of money to Assyria. He finally rebels and relies upon Egypt, but fails him. And then he's taken down by Assyrians, and the city's besieged, and they're done. They take them, and they move them across the world to different places. Over! You know what, you know what this reads like, and what this sounds like? It reads and sounds like a newspaper, doesn't it? It's just like, it's almost like we have a journalist saying, here are the facts. This is what happened. They're gone. They're done. We have very little in here. Very little in here about the story behind the story. Up to this point. Just, yep. We can debate all night. Should Menahem have paid off the Assyrians? He was only delaying their inevitable death. Or should he have, while the nation was at its strongest, attacked Assyria? We could debate, did he do the right thing? Which political party should he have listened to? Which one had the right way for the nation? The same with Pekka, the same with Hosea. We can debate their politics and their policies. We can say, yeah, they should have fired their foreign affairs um, person, I'm losing, uh, chief of staff, uh, okay, what's it called? Foreign affairs, there you go, that person. <laughs> um, we should have fired him, should have hired someone else, should have had a different strategy, should have had better allies, should have put their tax money into the army or into this or that instead of this or that. You could have all those conversations, and with the way the text reads right now, it's what it lends. Here's the debate. Menaniah should have done this. Hosea should have done that. Pekka's, it's his fault we're where we are. But the problem with the news, now, please don't get me wrong, we should be informed people, and it's been said by many Christian writers that we should pray with a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand, or your tablet, however you get your news. Um, and that's true. Christians should be praying for the things that are going on in the world, and we shouldn't be living under a rock. Newspapers are fine. The news is fine. Please be informed. But all of our news is so mainstream. And what I mean by that is no one in the news wants to rock the boat too severely. We want to keep the status quo alive. We'll, we'll challenge people to a point, but we got to keep our supporters. we got to keep our readers. It's soft. Sometimes it doesn't get to the real story beneath the story. And so we say, we say in news, breaking news, Samaria has been besieged by the Assyrians. That's breaking news. But then the prophet comes. So the journalist says, breaking news, we're in trouble. The prophet comes and says, let's take that news and let's break down the breaking news. You broke the story, now let's break the story apart and find out what is really going on. That's what the prophets do. That's what we're going to read in the next few verses. So, let's continue in verse 7. So far, strictly political account, journalism. Now in verse 7, you get the voice of the prophet. Our narrator is being prophetic here. He's getting to the story under the story. Verse 7 of 17. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them up 
out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. Verse 7 encapsulates everything you need to see. This occurred, the exile, the misery, the Assyrian Empire coming and taking down Israel and scattering them around the world. They lost their kingdom. They lost their home. They lost their freedom. They broke the covenant because this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh, their God. Boom. We can talk all day about whether Menahem should have attacked Assyria, relied on allies, or paid him a heavier tribute, or what have you. Whether Hosea should have rebelled or not. We could talk all day about political strategies and which party was right. But at the end of the day, the prophet looks beneath all this and says, Hey, hey, we're missing the real story here. We're missing it. Nobody's willing to name what's really going on here. It was sin. That's why nobody liked the prophets. That's why they never had a news channel or a newspaper because, yeah, we don't read you. You call things for what they are. We like the people that say, oh, no, 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 no. It's our leader's fault or it's the policy's fault or it's that people aren't getting involved in this. It's, we like those explanations. But when you start to say it's because we made choices to fail God. We made choices to sin against him. We chose to rebel against the king of the universe and do things our way. We failed because we thought that we had a better way and didn't listen to Yahweh, didn't take heed to his prophets, didn't keep his word. When you start to put responsibility in the laps of your hearers, they don't like that. That's what the prophet does. Prophet says, all right, everyone's telling you this, but behind all of this news is the fact that you guys have sinned. That's the issue. He goes into detail. What do you mean by sin? What you call sin, I call freedom. Okay, the prophet makes sure this is utterly clear. It's almost tedious. He continues in verse 9. The people of Israel did secretly against Yahweh their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. High places, by the way, was just code for... They put other gods there where they could um, have lots of riotous living with these gods. High places, high life. Think high life when you read high places. That was the good life up there. Um, The high places, verse 10, they set up for themselves pillars. Now, pillars is a very nice translation. Um, Some translations call it the, the phallic. It's, it's, a, it's an erect male penis is what it is. And so they have these there in order to make, arouse feelings in the worshipers so that they could do, you know, th- things up there for their gods. So they set up for themselves those and an ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did. Whom Yahweh carried away before them. So they just follow the same path. Of course they're not leaving the land. 
And they did wicked things, provoking Yahweh to anger. And they served idols of which Yahweh had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. He loved them. So he sent prophets to warn them. But in verse 14, they would not listen. But were stubborn as their fathers had been. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. The question is, which apple? Which tree? The one in Eden? Yeah, Israel is not very unlike Adam and Eve, are they? 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false gods and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom Yahweh had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of Yahweh their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. Remember that? The northern kingdom set up two golden calves, just like the golden calf they worshipped in the wilderness when they left Egypt. Two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served the dreaded Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. Therefore, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. That's, that's the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. Now, Judah also did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. But we'll get to them next week, okay? We'll see them. They'll finally fall years later. Verse 20, And Yahweh rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Remember, that was back when Solomon died. Jeroboam took the ten tribes in rebellion and they started a new kingdom and founded it in Samaria. So that's what it's, it's giving you the history there. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following Yahweh and made them commit great sin. 22. The people of Israel walked in the sins that Jeroboam did, their first king. They did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight. So Jeroboam takes this new kingdom split off from Jerusalem. He takes this new kingdom and says, all right, so that we don't go back to them, we're going to worship our own God. So here's two golden calves. You guys can pick whichever side you guys like, whichever one has better worship services. And we're going to worship these gods. And from Jeroboam on, every single king continued in that religion all the way down to Hosea. And the narrator here is telling us, that they wouldn't stop until he threw them out of the land. That was the only way to get them to stop worshiping idols. Wow. They did not depart from them, 23, until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. They were warned. So Israel was exiled from their own land 
to Assyria until this day. And we still don't know where those 12 tribes are. To this day, they were intermarried with and the bloodline was polluted to the point of, where are they? So, that's the sad end. What stuck out to me so deeply was verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. And here, they went after false gods and became false. And they followed the nations. They went after false gods and became false. That phrase was sticking with me so much. And I'm glad it did because I went and looked up the Hebrew for false. And I think the ESV here does a disservice to us. Um, I can't remember which translation is which. But one says empty. Or it says nobodies. They went after nobody gods and so became nobodies. Uh, One of them says vanity. They went after vanity and so became vain. And so the Hebrew word here is a root word. It's haval. And from this word, we get the word that the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the name Abel or Avel in Genesis 4, whose name means a breath, a vapor. What happens here is we read that Israel went after false gods, or in other words, vaporous, thin, misty, smoky, nothing but wind gods. They were vain. They were empty. They were hollow. They had zero substance. They had no groundedness. They went after these gods. And so because of that, they became empty, hollow, a mist, a whiff, a very short vapor of life, empty, superficial, shallow, ungrounded. Because you're going to become exactly like the God that you worship. And so because the gods were false, they became false. Now, in the beginning, after God had created the heavens and the earth, on the sixth day, as the final crowning piece of his creation... God forms man and woman. And when he does so, it says that he created them in his image. Here's what's amazing. The word image, when we say we're made in the image of God, it's the exact same word for idol. Remember the second commandment, shall not make an image of any other living thing. You could literally read that man and woman were made as the idols of God. And this is why God tells his people, you shall not make any graven images, you shall not make any idols or worship any of those things. Why? What's the big deal? Because God already made an idol. Humans. They were the image of who he is. 
just like a statue of wood or gold of Baal was the image of Baal. The humans are the image of God. What's amazing about this is that when he made us his images, it means that we, like an idol, are the representation of that God. And we go through the world representing him to creation. Which means that he has given us enough of a buffer between us and the created world so that we are above it. He sees us as some sort of master over the world. His representative. Hey, this is my place. I'm the king of the cosmos, but I want you to be my, my representatives. You are my image bearers. You are to show the creation who I am, and you're to represent the creation to me. And so he gives them power to do this. Genesis says that he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So what is it to be in the likeness and image of God? It's to have dominion, rulership, authority, power over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And so the humans were given rulership, power over the creation. What happens when we create idols and create other images is that we are actually surrendering the power that we have inherently as God's made in God's image, and we are giving that power over to the thing we created. And that's where sin came from. Sin came from our saying, okay, great. This created thing looks amazing. I love it. I adore it. I want to worship it. And the more we gave our admiration and our desire and our affection to it, we gave our power to it. Because now we're not the image. The image of God is not serving some other image of creation. The image of God is ruling over it, but we became servants to it, and therefore we lost our power. And that's where Romans one twenty three says that what happened with humanity is that, Romans one twenty three is that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling moral, mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We exchanged the glory of God, which was inherent in us, because he made us. And we exchanged that and put that glory into the things we saw. We said, ooh, that's beautiful, or ooh, that's amazing, or ooh, this makes me feel good, or that's going to make me look powerful, or if I utilize that, I can kill people and take over kingdoms. We started to put that glory into these things. And because the glory of God, which was meant to rule creation, was put in things, that power then turned on us and began to rule us and to command us. And that's why the Bible calls sin slavery and why it makes such a big deal about idolatry is because we are actually, what we're doing is we are walking through the woods of the, of the world and we're saying, oh, look at that house. It's made of candy. Ooh, I want it. And we want to move in there instead of the house we were made to live in. And then, and then we think that we're consuming the goods it has to offer us, and we're consuming and consuming, all the while not realizing that the consumption is meant to make us fat so that we don't care anymore, and then we are consumed by that which we were seduced by. Do idols exist today? Do we have to look at Israel falling to idolatry and losing their rulership? Do we have to see that and say, oh, come on, this doesn't apply to us anymore. There are no idols. There are no statues in my house. No, friends. Idolatry is about where your heart is. 
It's about your loves and your desires. Here's how idolatry works. Because we have a hard time recognizing it, especially when it's been in our lives for a long time. Because we go around saying, of course the sky is blue. It's always been blue. If an idol is in your life for a long you say, of course that's in my life. That's not an idol. I call that a hobby. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to see. We need to step back and look at how, how exactly does idolatry work? Because no one in here, I assume, if I, if I represent an idol to you guys, be like, hey, look at this beautiful blue idol. Who wants to worship this night? We can start our own church. You don't have to come here anymore and hear me. We can let Ron lead this cult right here. Who's going to sign up? And he's like, ah, it's, not, it's not even very pretty. It has cute little kid stickers on it. Like, most of us aren't lured by that. So how exactly does idolatry work? How does Israel get to the point where they're worshiping Baal and all these other gods that they're accused of? How, how does that work? Idolatry works. There's four steps that I sensed happening as I examined myself, culture, and what I just read and see in the Bible about idolatry. I think idolatry works by seeking four things from us, or to do four things to us. First, idolatry seeks to seduce us. Idolatry seeks to seduce us. Like Hansel and Gretel, they were seduced. The witch knew how to get a child into her door. Give him candy. And it's what we teach all our kids, right? If a stranger offers you candy, because it works. But here's what's interesting about seduction and the illustration in the story. Is that I think we often guard against ideas and beliefs and doctrines. And so we think that we're protecting ourselves by making our brains more intelligent about God. But really, the way idolatry works is it doesn't try to steal your ideas. Idolatry tries to steal your loves and your desires and your affections. Because idolatry is seductive. It's not intellectual. It's after your senses and through the senses. Like candy. It tastes good. It gets, into your, it gets to your heart through the body, through the senses. That's how it works. And often the problem for us is that we're very good at training our minds to love Christ. But we're not always good at training our affections for Christ. And the truth is, we can believe, I can brainwash you guys. I can down, maybe one day, we can download information to our heads and say, this is what you need to believe in. No, and no, we all have it. But the bottom line is, that's not going to change our behavior. Because it's our desires that drive our actions. Information alone can't change my desires. I read this startling quote. I'm going to read it to you. It's, it's referring to the mall as one of the major temples of idolatry in our culture. It's really interesting reading its entirety. I'll talk a little bit about it on the B-Side podcast. Um, but for now, let this suffice. Quote, the mall is a religious site. Not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. And by liturgical, he means it has enacted practices Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but in its rituals. 
The mall doesn't care what you think, but it is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. And when I read that, I said, whoa, mind blown to smithereens. This is so true. And when we watch film and when we look at society, what we're used to defending against is saying, what does it want me to believe? And we say, oh, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't buy that. But actually, we should be asking, what does this film, what does this product, what does this thing want me to love? That's what we need to be guarding against. You see, idolatry's goal is to get you and I to visualize a picture of the good life. What is the good life? And once we see a vision of the good life, you will desire it, and that desire will drive everything you do toward that vision of the good life. Now, the Bible gives us a vision of the good life. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. That is the biblical vision of the good life. But we live in a society where retirement might be the vision of the good life. Or driving this car. Or having enough money to splurge at the mall every time I'm depressed. Or being able to eat every single food on the menu, regardless of the calories and what it's made of, and have no physical consequences. Or the good life is being able to fit in a bikini during the summer. Or the good life is being able to have sexual liberty to be with whoever I want to be, whenever I want to be, however many times I want to be. There are so many visions of the good life. And as soon as we see something that captures our imagination, it then causes us to desire it. That's when you have an idol. And that's when you have a problem is when you have a vision of the good life that is not the kingdom of God. Because now your heart will be driven in that direction, no matter what you believe. So idolatry works by first seeking to seduce your desires. Second, idolatry works by seeking to normalize your desires. Notice what it said in the text, all over the place, normalizing the desires. It says in verse 8, they walked in the customs of the nations. Um, it's in the middle of verse 11, it says that they did as the nations did. In verse 15, in the middle, they went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations and then we saw it emphasized in verse 21. When uh, Nebat had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, oh, excuse me, uh, when God had torn them, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sins. And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did, and they did not depart from them. Okay. So idolatry wants to normalize itself in your life so what what do we see the narrator telling us israel did but 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 all the nations do this this is normal to worship baal and to have the high places and to sacrifice our children and so forth this is what everybody on the planet except for those judeans down in jerusalem it's what everybody does it's normal idolatry wants you to believe that so this is where it gets really hard is because some things in society and in the lives around us and even in the church are normal. 
And we wouldn't even think of questioning them. And, and here's one danger, is that we have something, and rather than calling it what it is, like the prophet does, we, we give it a nickname. Oh, no, 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 that's just, it's just a little vice. You know how, how many times people throw out the word, this is my vice, and we kind of just, it's like, I know I shouldn't do it, but it's not really a sin, it's just something I, I don't know. People throw that word around like, oh, I listened to, that movie's my vice, or ice cream is my vice, or whatever it is. But, but we've we got to be careful, or it's my hobby, or it's just a stress relief, or it's a, it's a season, it's a stage, it's a phase. When we nickname our activity and our desire, you're normalizing it. Let's, 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 let's rob it of its powerful word, sin, and let's just give it a nickname. And when you give something a nickname, it means you have affection for it. It means you're accepting it. When I give a student a nickname... That's usually a good sign for the student, unless it's bozo or something mean, but those stay in my head, right? (laughs) See, when we give a nickname, it means we accept them, we have affection toward them, and we need to be careful of those things that we are unwilling to call what they are. It's not pornography, it's an aid for my sexual life, though that's, that's common, that's very common. See, right there, what idolatry wants us to do is to normalize itself in our lives. So first, it seeks to seduce us. It seeks to normalize. Then third, it wants to consume. It wants to consume. First, it wants you to believe that it is offering something for you to consume. Man, I just... Oh, and you're seduced by something you can take. Like, oh, wow, I get to have this. I get to feel that. I get to partake of that. And friends, this is where it's dangerous is because America is, by definition, a consumerism society. We run on consuming things. And we need to be careful that what we consume doesn't become an idol. Because the idol wants you to feel like you're the God and it is your servant. Here, let me give you more candy. Here's some hot cocoa. Here's a nice bed for you children. Wow, let me receive this. Let me take this. Let me, whoa, I feel I'm being pampered like a king. But what we have to be careful of is that the more and more we consume without any awareness, it's getting us fatter so that we sit comfortably in the status quo. And that's when everything gets normalized, right? Oh, no, no, it's fine. Don't make me get up, please. I feel so comfortable with this bonbon bucket on my lap. But it's only letting us consume its goods so that it can then turn around when we're fat enough and can't run to consume us. That's the goal. Yes, sin might have its pleasure. It's only so that you won't move when it strikes. That's its goal. And you, and you, noticed, you noticed how it said Israel, verse 15, they went after vanity idols and became vain. It's hollowness is what that word is, a breath. It's like how a wind has nothing substantial, how a breath, a mist, a vapor, smoke, is like here and it's gone and there's no substance to it. You can see through it. They were shallow. They were a husk, a shell with no substance. That's what happened because their gods consumed them in turn. Yeah. It's dangerous. And then you have no power because you've given it everything. 
And that's when the fourth and final thing that happens with an idolatry occurs is that you're enslaved. You're enslaved because now you have absolutely no substance left and you're stuck. And that's what happened to Israel. They fall enslaved to the Assyrians. They're exiled from their true purpose and from their true identity. And so will you. No longer a child of God. You're a child of this thing which you served because you thought you could control it. You thought I could normalize it. I'm consuming it. But in the, turn, in the end, it consumed you. And now you're enslaved to it because you have no strength left because you've given everything to it. How does idolatry work? It seeks to seduce us. It seeks to normalize its presence. It seeks to consume us and then finally enslave us and exile us. So careful we need to be. And I wonder if the things that we're in a habit of consuming, of turning to, is because there's unaddressed pain in our life or fear or anger, or whatever whatever the journalists are throwing at us, and we say, ah, I don't know what to do, I don't know what's going on in my life, and so we turn to other things to make us feel better. Menahem, it was in chapter 15, verse 19, when Paul, the king of Assyria, came. Remember, Menahem pulled out a bunch of silver to give to the king. And I couldn't help but see that that's you and I. When the threats come and the pain is present in our life, we pull out our cash and throw money at our problems. We say, well, this will make me feel better. This will make me look better. This will help me ignore this. If I busy myself with this project, this hobby, this activity, that'll be fine. And look, most of the time, there are cases where it can be sin. But I think for most of us, maybe we're not running to prostitutes or, or porn or drugs or alcohol. Uh, most of the time, at least. Maybe we're running to other things to get our minds off of what's going on, to take the edge off of our pain so that we ignore all these things. And we're, what happens is we, like a tr- classic American consumers, we throw money at these things because it makes us feel good about ourselves and our lives and our problems. And we're fine with it because like journalists, we're not willing to go where the prophet goes. Like, oh, no, I'm just not comfortable with that. So we go toward this. This just makes me feel better. But really, if we look deep inside, we would realize we're throwing money away because we're not addressing the true problem within. We don't want to name the things that are there. We don't want to name things like I haven't forgiven Sarah for what she said or Bill for what he did. And my lack of forgiving them is boiling something unsettling in my heart. And what I do to deal with that is I throw silver at these things because they help me feel normalized. Friends, we, we, need, we need the Jeremiah's. So good, we're going to that book next. We need the Jeremiah's, the Isaiah's, the Ezekiel's. We need the prophets to speak radically in our lives. To say... Yeah, yeah, we could talk about which king did which policy, but the true problem is, verse 7, that Israel sinned. And where am I not following or listening to God? So we don't need to keep paying off our pain. What we need is a phrase I've become very fond of recently, because I've been thinking about this more than I have recently. By recently, I mean the last few years of my life. Um, It's the spiritual disciplines And the spiritual disciplines are simply a set of practices which Christians have done for thousands of years. 
to keep their affections in the kingdom of God. But we've kind of minimized these because we think that all we need to do is go to church and sing emotional songs and hear messages that make me think, oh, that's interesting. Oh, now I know a verse or two. And then we go home, we do this the rest of our lives unthinkingly and just kind of go with the status quo. Well, Jeroboam did this, so here I go. But the spiritual disciplines are meant to shape us, They're meant to shape us, to give us rhythms of life so that our affections gravitate around the center of gravity called the kingdom of heaven. They pull us in. They keep us there. And there's so many that you can name. But I just want to, for time's sake, um, for brevity's sake, I want to share three that are very important to me that I think combat the sins we see here. Three disciplines we can begin to develop in our lives. The first is repentance or confession. I've mentioned this recently, especially when we looked at King David and his sin. But confession is not popular in America anymore. We are so used to seeing leaders stand up and deny all charges. I never did that, even though we all know they did. We're so used to that. We begin to say this to ourselves. I didn't do that. Nope, that didn't happen. Nope, nope. But what happens when we confess, when we come together as a fellowship and we take communion and we say, God, I'm sorry for this. We do what the prophet does and we actually give a name to that which we've been ignoring. Israel's like, oh no, the king's policies, that's why we fell. But the prophet's like, no, it's sin. And then when we confess before God, like, I lied, I lusted, I hated, I slandered, I gossiped. And we say these vicious, ugly words. We're now breaking out of the mainstream journalism and we're starting to listen to the prophet and actually call things for what they are. It's no longer normalized as, oh yeah, I was telling a juicy story. It was, I gossiped, I slandered, I murdered that person's reputation. And now we have to confront that and say, yep, I did that. And confession, yep, that'll keep you from being seduced because... Instead of the children calling it a house of candy in our dreams, it's now a house of fattening sugar so that the witch can eat us. <laughs> Confession can change everything when we're willing to give sin its proper name. The second spiritual discipline. Silence. 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 We're a culture that doesn't like silence. We like noise and sound. Silence is about creating space to hear the scriptures, to hear the spirit. That's what silence gives to us. So that we can then discern the status quo and we can learn how to unravel it in our lives. We need to listen in silence. Because notice how Israel, it told us in verse 14, the prophets spoke, but they would not listen. So we need that space to listen to sermons, to scripture, to the spirit. And then we will be set in the right direction. And we will hear God tell us, you say it's that, but this is what it is. Don't normalize this. Don't say, but it's what society, everyone's doing it. It's just a phase. No, this silence can teach us that. And then finally, so we have um, repentance. We have silence. We have third and finally, we have fasting. Now, 
There was a time when I was young and in youth group, and we had forced fasts. <laughs> we were locked in the youth room, spent all night, and there was no food anywhere. They vacuumed the carpet spotlessly, lest you find a crumb of a cookie under a chair. Like, or the gum underneath the seat. <gasps> food! <laughs> you get, a, a teenager fasting is a miracle. That we didn't eat each other might be even more miraculous. 72-hour fast. That was, no, 36-hour. 36 36-hour 36 fast. Locked in the room. Like, it was crazy. And, the, and then the, they bring in the pizza and the chips. Like, oh, sorry, I came an hour early. You got to just smell it and sit with it, you know. So I remember fasting as a teenager and going, yeah, I mean, I get the point of this. But honestly, this is making me a worse person because I'm grumpier. I don't like who I am when I'm hungry. So I gave up on fasting for years until this year. Brittany and I decided, you know what, let's just try small fasts once in a while and see what happens. And it's actually really cool. I mean, it's hard, but it's really great because we get in touch with our impulses. Because when you don't give in to your impulse and you resist it, you begin to figure things out about yourself and what you're drawn to. And you get to watch that rather than just, I'm going with the flow, Jeroboam did it, right? You're not doing that anymore. You actually have to resist, and you have to pay attention. And yes, it can be something like food. It's a typical one. But you can, you can fast a lot of things just to abstain from it. But it teaches you about more than food. Like, yes, I learned what I desire and what I crave when I'm hungry and how to control that. But also, it begins to show me deeper within my impulses for all other kinds of things I lust for and grab for. Fasting is an excellent discipline to teach us not to jump at the first house made of sugar and candy we find in the forest. So those are the three spiritual disciplines.